Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is the Vice Guide to Right Now, your inside look into the best of Vice. It's Monday, October 22nd. I'm Sophie Casas. Today we're talking to former born-again Christian Linda K. Klein about how evangelical purity culture can lead to a lifetime of sexual shame. For millions of girls and women growing up in evangelical Christianity, Sexuality is considered a sin. Girls are told that they are sexual stumbling blocks and a danger to the relationship between men and God. And the effects of these messages, which are central to what's known as purity culture, can be incredibly damaging. Writer Linda K. Klein, who herself grew up in the purity movement, just released a new book called Pure, inside the movement that shamed a generation of young women and how I broke free. It combines personal reflections with years of research to trace the psychological effects of purity culture on women, which in some cases can look similar to the symptoms of PTSD. Here's Linda K. Klein speaking with Broadly Managing Editor Sarah Burke on the story. Your book is about the long-term effects of growing up within the purity movement and within purity culture for women. Can you explain to me what the purity movement is? So the purity concept, of course, has been around for a really long time. This idea that girls and women in particular are defined as either pure or impure, good or bad, worthy or unworthy, you know, sort of insert your shaming messages here based on other people's perceptions of their sexual lives. But something really unique happened in the early 1990s, and that is that the white American evangelical Christian church took this you know, popular sort of cultural concept and really developed a purity movement, which very quickly became a purity industry. So that's when we really start to see all of these purity products that saturated the lives of people like me who grew up in the American evangelical subculture, um, but that also in you know, more diluted forms saturated our society as a whole, purity rings, purity balls, purity pledges, uh, purity curricula, you know, and the product that I think really says it all is these purity themed Bibles that um, basically had non-biblical material that was entirely dedicated to the importance of one's purity that made it very difficult for a young person. I can you know, speak as one who grew up in the community to differentiate, you know, your sexual purity from your worth and your salvation. As you said, you grew up in the purity movement, and then you eventually actually left the evangelical church and went on to write this book. Can you walk me through that journey? Sure. It was a, a slow journey, to be sure. There were a lot of points along the way when I started to separate my relationship with God and my faith from my relationship with a very particular institution that defined my faith for me in ways that didn't align with my own faith 
and experience really. And one of the ways that there was a disconnect was these purity teachings and gender and purity are really inextricable from one another. So gender teachings as well. And I ultimately ended up leaving evangelicalism when I was in my early 20s, really around 2021. And it was a heartbreaking experience, to be honest, because, you know, evangelicalism was my entire life. It was my purpose. It was my community. It was, you know, I feared my access point to God, though I was starting to separate those things. Um, You know, they were still merged in a lot of parts of my mind because I'd been raised to believe that you couldn't have one without the other. But, you know, I ended up leaving the community. And when I did, thinking that I would be free (laughs) from all of the sexual shame and fear and anxiety that had haunted me up until that point and discovered, you know, to the contrary, that those things were still very much a part of my life because I had so deeply internalized them, having been, you know, really raised on them. So I had to begin a whole new journey Um, I realized that separating myself from the shaming messages wasn't going to decrease the shame in my life. So I had to had to find another way. And that was really what led to ultimately this book, because after many years of trying to do it on my own, what I ultimately ended up doing was calling up all my girlfriends who I'd been raised with in my church youth group and telling them what I was experiencing, the things that made me feel completely broken, completely alone. And then listening as they told me very similar stories from their own lives. And this realization that I wasn't alone, which became a trigger for these 12 years of interviews that I started doing with people around the country, became a healing journey for me and a very different kind of spiritual quest, I would say, and and spiritual journey about coming into a new way of looking at at myself as an embodied (laughs) spiritual creature. What were you experiencing? What were the ways that sexual shame was manifesting for you at the time? Mm. So one of the big things that was coming up was that I, at one point was in my early 20s, was in a relationship with a man that I loved. I'd been with him several years and I felt ready to have sex with him. This was the unthinkable thing where I grew up, right? You know, there was a lot of ambiguity about when you would lose your purity, how you would lose your purity. Some people taught that, you know, even just making someone else think about their own sexuality because you dressed in a way that was deemed sexual or whatever it was would make you impure. So there was a lot of anxiety about all the many ways you could lose your purity without even knowing it, right? But the one thing that was very clear is that you would absolutely lose your purity, which again, you know, it means your worth if you had sex before marriage. So for me, when I came to the conclusion that I no longer, you know, felt held to that expectation and that I wanted to have sex with my boyfriend, it actually broke open just so much uh, shame and fear and anxiety that had been present all along, but that now was just so much stronger because it was manifesting in my body in ways that I couldn't control. I was with this gentleman for years and he and I talk about it every once in a while today. We're still friends. And he reminds me 
that um, that the years that we were together, these sort of physical manifestations were coming up, even at the beginning when we would just talk about the possibility of having sex or about other people having sex. But once we got to the point where we were actually starting to head down that road, that's when I started to have um, really physical experiences like breaking down into tears, um, you know, scratching, scratching at my eczema that comes out when I get stressed that was coming out in, you know, in uncontrollable levels until I was bleeding and ending up in a ball in a corner of the bed crying, <laughs> you know, which definitely did not allow for sex to happen. And then after that experience, you know, still feeling so terrified of having gotten even anywhere close to having sex that I had this overwhelming fear that I had gotten pregnant. And that this sin that I no longer thought was a sin was going to be exposed to a community that I was no longer a part of, but that I still, I still held myself to standards that they had raised me on. And so I would end up going to the local drugstore and, and buying a pregnancy test and taking a pregnancy test just to know that I was safe <laughs> and that I wouldn't be pulpit shamed and that people wouldn't, you know, um, be praying in front of my home. These are all things that happen, of course, right? Um, you know, I remember growing up and, and having a fellow youth group member, you know, the rest of the youth group determining that she was starting to fall down the slippery slope of not being a good enough Christian and sitting outside of her her home, sitting on her driveway and praying for her, the sort of like drive-by praying, <laughs> you know, and those types of things that um, were these sort of ways of community shaming, um, you know, still haunted me for a very long time, though I was no longer part of the community. Mm, wow. And at the time, you know, before you reached out to your childhood friends, how did you explain all of this to yourself? Where did you think it was coming from? Ugh. So I, I just say, ugh, because what a good question. Because for a long time, though, again, I disagreed with it, the narrative that I had been raised with in the community was haunting. And that narrative was that the reason that I was experiencing shame and fear and anxiety, which was you know coming up in the body even and being held in the body, was because I ought to be because I was doing something wrong, because I was sinful, because I was shameful, because I was bad. And that's the thing that they tell me to this day, right? You experience these things because you ought to be, you know, you're experiencing shame because you're shameful. And it wasn't until I started having these conversations with the people I grew up with and really saw that it didn't matter what life choices people made, that these experiences were happening among people who made all kinds of different life choices. So some of the people that I spoke with, you know, before I started doing the interviews and in that first year of interviews that were in my hometown, and of course, over the you know, many years of interviews that I did around the country, you know, some were virgins, some were uh, having sex outside of marriage, some were married and had waited to have their first kiss at the altar. Some were married and had had sex before marriage. You know, some were evangelical. Some were had left evangelicalism and, you know, were never going back, right? There was a massive range of life choices that people had made. And yet over and over and over again, I heard stories that mirrored the pain of my own life. And some of these stories were about experiences that were invisible to the rest of the world, experiences that people held inside of themselves and didn't talk about, but that were some of their deepest truths. And some of these stories were disrupting people's lives in very active ways. So 
one of the things I talk about is is the way that the body would sometimes hold these and and they would manifest in almost PTSD-like ways. So people having nightmares, people having anxiety that sometimes, you know, manifest as it did for me in these kinds of what my boyfriend termed freakouts at the time, but other people literally having panic attacks and going to the hospital, people having uh, a tremendous amount of fear that for some people like me, you know, resulted in almost paranoid uh, experiences like taking pregnancy tests when you weren't having sex, which it turns out a lot of people who were raised in this community are doing, and uh, you know, fearing that you're being followed when you go out on a date or whatever it is. And then finally, this sort of category of, of feelings of worthlessness. Some people, you know, again, it's just sort of this quiet sense that you are not really worth anything deep down, that you're damaged goods, whatever it is. Um, and other people, you know, it really extends to the point where people are self-harming or are feeling that that they don't deserve to live. So truly, you know, seeing that these types of experiences were happening among people who had done everything just the way that the purity teachings told them they were supposed to. And that the purity teachings said that if you just do things this way, we promise you that you're going to have a blissful, perfect sexual life. <laughs> you're going to find an amazing husband, a good Christian husband. He'll never leave you. He'll never cheat on you because your total non-sexuality before marriage is going to somehow magically turn into your hypersexuality after marriage. You'll be his great sexual satisfier. Everything's going to be perfect, y'all, if you just do this. And of course, you know, over the course of many years, I met many people who had just done that. <laughs> and yet people in all these categories were whispering these stories of sexual shame and fear. Were there any particular stories that really struck you that really stand out in your memory? Well, I think the first time that I really understood that the problem wasn't me, that it was something outside of me that I was taught, that we were taught, was when I went back to my hometown and I was talking with a girlfriend of mine who had actually taken a very different path than me. You know, I went to a secular college after having originally been signed up to go to Bible college to become a missionary. I, I had pulled out two weeks before school and gone to a secular college. But this fellow youth group friend of mine had gone to a very conservative Christian college, even more conservative than our youth group. So she had had a very, very conservative path. And then she had later actually become um, a professor at that college. And yet she had confessed to me that she was always walking on eggshells, that she was um, had uh, nightmares of the school's all-male deans raping her. She just felt like she was always, you know, on the edge of being pulpit shamed, though she wasn't doing anything that deserved pulpit shaming. Although, of course, you know, you can be pulpit shamed for so many things that who knows, right? But, you know, ultimately, she, I remember, felt a tremendous amount of relief when she uh, was getting married. And that was felt like an excuse for her to be able to walk away in a way that didn't force her to reject the community in a way that felt dangerous. I mean, she wanted to get married, not that she got married to walk away, but, you know, getting married was a, an acceptable way to leave, right? To be able to say, I can't teach here anymore because I'm getting married and I need to go be with my husband. So she went and she got married and she was living with her husband. And I went, this is, you know, before I started doing the interviews, I went and I was uh, hanging out with her at her new apartment with her husband. And she confessed that she was still overwhelmed with fear. And though she thought it was 
nonsensical, just as I had thought taking pregnancy tests without having sex was nonsensical, that she couldn't shake this fear that there were recording devices even that they had placed in her home to find out all the many ways that she was being a bad Christian wife, right? Um, You know, which in part was about sexuality and about her now expressing her sexuality. And I remember saying to her, well, listen, let's just go through your apartment. We'll just make sure there are no recording devices, you know? So we went through and we went through her Kleenex boxes and pulled out the Kleenex and we went into, you know, looked behind the picture frames and, um, you know, went into every sort of nook and, and cranny where there could be a recording device and didn't find any. And I remember looking at her after we did this and seeing this tremendous look of relief come across her face and thinking to myself that is exactly what I feel when I take a pregnancy test. <laughs> you know, it's this relief that though it seems nonsensical, we know we're safe for a little bit longer, having both been raised within a world in which, you know, again, our worth was defined by other people. It was not about whether or not we were pure. It was about whether or not people thought we were pure. You know, when you can be called impure because someone decides that you're too sexual based on the length of your skirt or based on whether or not you call boys or whatever it is, your sexuality, your body, your worth is given to the hands of other people to define you. And it creates a lot of anxiety about how far people will go <laughs> to, to find you out as unworthy and, and ultimately, you know, deserving of rejection. And so clearly, you know, there are both boys and girls who grew up in the purity movement. But you write in your book that women and girls are really the ones who end up being affected most. What are the ways in which girls are taught differently? What are the kinds of things that they're told growing up within the purity culture that creates these kinds of effects? You know, I haven't done enough research with men and boys to be able to say that women and girls are affected most. Um, Because, oh, man, do I hear some stories from men who are struggling. What I will say is that the gendered teachings are very different and that women and girls get a unique shaming (laughs) because ultimately, you know, we can be shamed not only for our own sexual thoughts and, and feelings and behaviors, but as women and girls, you can also be shamed for the sexual thoughts and feelings and behaviors of others about you and toward you. Because we were taught that men and boys were essentially sort of sexually weak. Part of their manly masculinity, which was so praised, was that they were tempted by the female flesh. You know, in some ways, their temptation proved their masculinity and their manhood, which was a requirement also in the community, which requires strict gender role um, adherence. But men were also expected to, you know, conquer those sexual thoughts and feelings. And women and girls who were not as sexually weak, ultimately, it was our role to help them to conquer those sexual thoughts and feelings by instilling no sexual temptations, right? So that meant we had to do everything exactly right. <laughs> you know, like I said, you know, I, I remember being pulled aside a lot growing up and, and called a stumbling block, literally a thing over which men and boys trip on their pathway to God. And I just never knew what it was that I was going to be pulled aside for. You know, I mean, if I was wearing the right shirt, I was wearing the wrong skirt. If I wasn't calling boys, I was talking to them too much in youth group. You know, whatever it was, it felt like because our bodies were the holder of sexuality, you know, if, if, if there was any sexual activity that happened, it was always our fault. 
And I think it's a very dangerous thing, of course, to blame one gender for the thoughts and feelings and actions of another gender that, you know, plays out in some very dangerous ways, you know, particularly when violence starts to come into play. Mm -hmm. In your adult life today, how have you worked through these feelings and how have you undone some of this, you know, being told you're a stumbling block? How have you convinced yourself, no, actually, I'm not? So for me, the process of doing the interviews was incredibly healing because I basically was going through a story exchange process. I say interview, but it makes it sound, um, you know, that is true. I was interviewing people and other people spoke more than I spoke. But at the same time, it was also a story exchange because I, you know, when someone would say a, a story that reflected the truth of my life, I would share it. When someone told me a story and said, you know, I, I've never told anyone this before. I think I'm alone. And it reflected the truth of other interviewees' lives. I would share you're the third or the fourth or the seventh or the eighth person to tell me a story like that. So for both of us, for both the people I was talking to and me, this story exchange became a, a healing experience because it allowed us to see that we weren't alone which countered that narrative that you and I were talking about earlier that said, you're having these problems because you're wrong and bad. You know, when you start to hear how many people are having these experiences, you start to go, oh, okay, the problem can't be me because there are just too many of us experiencing these things, right? So is the whole, is the whole subculture wrong and bad? Or are we teaching some problematic things, right? And so the more that I was able to, to identify these teachings as separate from me, you know, and, and be able to say, okay, no, the issue is over there and I'm over here, right? It's not, it's not me. It's something that was taught to me. You know, then I could start to really look at it and contend with it and say, you know, okay, what was I taught? And what are the, what are the aspects of that that are useful? And what are the aspects of that that are harmful? And, you know, what are the aspects of that that are playing out in this part of my life and that part of my life? And, and really be able to sort of break apart the larger construction of my worldview and of my self-conception, you know, worldview, right? Like who I am and who the world is around me. So I actually, you know, recently am working on a nonprofit called Break Free Together because they believe that what I stumbled onto with doing these, these interviews and what my interviewees and I together stumbled onto, you know, really is, I think, uh, the key. I think that the more that people can come into voice and talk about the truth of their lives, the more that we see the myths that we were taught, because nothing will show you whether something, you know, is a truth or a myth, like the reality of people's lives. And uh, so Break Free Together creates, you know, sort of a spectrum of ways for people to be able to come into voice at a at a level that is appropriate for where they're at. You know, do you need to just tell a friend your truth? who's not going to judge you and who's not going to try to fix you? Um, or are you ready to start telling your story more publicly? So Pure has been out for about a month now. What has the reception been like from the evangelical community? Oh, gosh. Um, the vast majority of the messages I get from people are people saying, this is my story, or this is close to my story and is bringing up parts of my story. And I felt alone and I feel a little less alone now. That is the thing that I'm hearing and I hear it from evangelicals and I hear it from people who have left evangelicalism and I hear it from Catholics and I hear it from secular people. 
you know, I particularly hear it from people who grew up in the purity movement, but not exclusively, you know, because the, the thing to realize also is that these teachings, these purity culture teachings that I was raised with in the purity movement, you know, are really just intensified versions of what we are taught in much of society about girls and women and our worth being defined by our, our sexual activity and sexiness and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, so really we're getting many of these same teachings in the air we breathe, which the purity movement is in part responsible for, but in part, uh, you know, pre-existed, <laughs> pre-existed the movement and, you know, sort of there's an interplay, right, between, between purity purveyors and, uh, and the culture at large. So I hear that from a lot of people. I do also hear, you know, some people who are uh, like, please shut up and sit down now. Um, <laughs> but, but what's so funny is that those people are saying the exact same things that I was told when I was, uh, when I was going through this, when I was in the subculture, you know, as a high schooler, as an adolescent. It's all the exact same messages. It's, uh, it's in, in fact, you, you can tell that they haven't read the book because they'll literally say word for word the things that I say people say, <laughs> you know, and that I spend the book countering and saying, no, the problem isn't you. The problem is the system. So the point is, I think that purity culture is alive and well. And there are a lot of people who are fighting tooth and nail to make sure that we keep on teaching these things. But I also think that there is a an experience on the ground of people's lives. You know, I'm, I'm in the first generation of people who came of age having been raised in the purity movement. I, I was in seventh grade in 1991. The purity movement really started to ramp up in the early 90s. So I really was within the very, very first kids to have grown up. So many, many, many people who grew up in this world are now able to say, know the myth that I was taught that I thought was truth, you know, is, isn't look at my life, <laughs> look at my friends' lives, you know? So I feel like now what we're seeing in the evangelical culture is sort of a disconnect. There are people who are like, I still believe in this story. I still believe in this purity, this purity story, and I'm going to stand by it and I'm going to teach it to, you know, anyone who will listen. And then there are people in the community who are, who are hurting and who are standing up and who are saying, I don't want to hurt anymore. And I don't want anyone else to be hurt. So I feel a little bit of tension and some of that tension seems to be a gap between the people on the ground who feel it, who live it, who know it. And I'm talking about young people who are you know, in youth groups, but moreover, I'm talking about adults who have experienced life a little bit to know that the teachings that we receive in our youth, you know, to challenge some of those teachings with lived experience. And I'm talking about, you know, youth pastors who see the way that young people struggle with it, chaplains who see the way that um, adults, young adults are struggling with it. You know, so there seems to be a gap between those people who are truly on the ground, who are sort of living and breathing this pain and acknowledging the church's complicity and contributing to that pain. And, uh, and some of the spokespeople of the subculture who um, are not uh, currently <laughs> speaking about purity culture as a negative thing. Make sure to check out Linda K. Klein's new book, Pure, and you can read the full article on broadly.vice.com. That's it for now. Thanks so much for listening. And tune in again on Wednesday for another Vice Guide to Right Now.